the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, everyone. Ian Simpkins here. And like many of you, we're with our family, our loved ones, and we're looking to kind of follow in the ways of Jesus by slowing down a little bit, breathing deeply, simply resting and celebrating. And so uh, for this week, we're sharing some of our favorite moments from the last year. So we didn't want you to think we're trying to pull a fast one on anyone. This is just sort of what we call a, a best of. And uh, so we hope that you enjoy this week some moments that we've loved from this last year doing the show. And uh, we really, really look forward to being with you again in the new year. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everybody. How you doing? No, 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 not the rest of them. How are you doing? Be honest. <laughs> it's okay. It's just me and you. How you feeling? What's going I want to do a whole show of just your welcomes. Just my... <laughs> like, mine are always the same. Welcome back to The Common Good. You can find us here, and you're like, hey, everybody, what's no, up? I'll tell you how you say it. Do you want to know how you say it? I, I think you're going to tell me one way or the other. I, I won't if you don't want me to. I do. I want, are you ready for it? Yes. Constructive <clears throat> all criticism right. in, no, with no, all of no, our no. It's not a criticism. It's just a mirroring. All I'm gonna, <laughs> it's just an impersonation, <laughs> and I'll withhold all judgment uh, and critique. Ready? I'm re- I think... I think I am. I think I am. Everybody, welcome to the common good. Yes. <laughs> like you're hiking a football. Like it's, uh, <laughs> when some ways we're hiking, it's like we're starting the play. That's true. That's not. That's not bad, actually. And I never say I've, I've from listening back. It's never like, hey, I'm Brian from, and with Ian. It's always like alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian. It's like the here same, we go. Right. Right. Well, you're the you're the straight man I, in this operation. That's and, the and you are. I'm whatever. <laughs> Whatever the that opposite isn't. of the straight right, man. Right. The wiggly man. Uh, all right. So I teed it up. Going to get ourselves in trouble. Yeah. If we haven't gotten in trouble yet. I don't Anyway. So uh, <laughs> the E word, why many avoid it and how we can reimagine it. It's by Ed Stetzer. And I don't think the E word is Ed, by the way. I don't, I don't, <laughs> we, it we might were, be. <laughs> we were trying to guess what the E word is. <laughs> well, that's what I try to do before I read these. Like. Yep. Good headlines do kind of draw you in, but if you already know what the whole thing's about, then you're like, ah, okay. So I actually read it and I was like, the E word, I, I kind of started rifling through like, what could this possibly be about? So those that are listening wondering, okay, but tell us. What is it actually about, Brian Fromm? Why don't you fill us in? Yep. The E word is evangelism. Oh, so Stetzer says. I get it. Stetzer says, if we are honest, we must say that in many senses, we've lost our imagination, passion, and direction for evangelism. We need to put evangelism back into our imagination. And mm-hmm. later on, he says, truth be told, people are more likely to make fun of evangelistic methods than actually engage in evangelistic practices. And he says, what's amazing is... Uh, that people in our culture are willing to have uh, spiritual conversations. In fact, research, he writes, has shown that 78% of people who don't attend church would be willing to engage in a faith conversation if asked. The stats tell us that the good 
that the good news may, in fact, be news that people are actually looking for. What a and, novel idea. And so Stetzer is trying to say here is that much the way Jesus said in the Gospels, uh, the harvest is plentiful, uh, right? Who's going to go out and, and do the work, essentially? And Does it involve a clipboard on a beach? <laughs> we'll see. This, this is why I underlined people are more likely to make fun of evangelistic methods. <laughs> is that in there? Yeah. Oh, I missed that. And so he says what we need to do is reimagine evangelism. Things that worked in the past likely will not work today, i.e. Mm. Uh, clipboards on a beach. Oh, right. The first person I witnessed to, he writes, was my dad. Forty years ago, he says, I was a brand new Christian. I went home and said, Dad, are you saved? He answered, saved from what? And I said, I don't know, but you need to be. <laughs> So he said, we must reimagine evangelism by asking missional questions. Evangelism is telling people about Jesus. Mission includes understanding them before we tell them. And so uh, this is this is uh, this is Rick Richardson being here a week or two ago. Right. right. It is. He, in fact, wrote a book called Reimagining Evangelism that I would highly recommend. Yep. Um, I think it's called You Found Me. No, no. He wrote a former book of his. An older book is Evangelism Reimagined or something. But um I, I love what Stetzer is saying here, and it's really convicting because so much of our church culture now is like, hey, you need to show people you love them. You need to get to know people first before you talk about Jesus, that we never get to the point of actually talking about Jesus. Mm. And Stetzer is saying you need to be missional in a sense of people need to know that you care. You need to be in people's lives. You need to be building relationships but at some point, you've got to introduce the words, uh, the name of Jesus and and talk about it. Uh, and I think his point is people are looking for those conversations. They're looking for that sort of good news in their life. Uh, and that increasingly, we as Christians are unwilling hmm. uh, to go down that road. OK, so the whole article hinges on these two statements in my mind. Okay. He says we must reimagine evangelism by asking missional questions. If you're listening, you're like, OK, what are missional questions? He says evangelism is telling people about Jesus. Mission includes understanding them before we tell them. Mm. So historically, like you and I were saying, we both were uh, raised in tradition that encouraged us, you know, and and for better or for worse, there's definitely some growth from that. But we would, you went to the beach. I didn't live near a beach. So I went to like carnivals or malls with a clipboard and you you just walked up to strangers and asked them if you were to die tonight, do you know where you would go? Mm -hmm. Which at at some level feels like a noble cause, right? Like, Hey, I'm going to cut through all the garbage your soul is at risk. Yep. Here's the question. Part of what Stetzer is proposing is evangelism coupled with with a good missiology seeks to better understand not only the context, but the person within that context, which takes time. Like you can't just I, you know, read stats about a person and then jump at it with a clipboard. Yep. I think it, it requires relational equity. I think part of what he's saying is in some circles, the pendulum swung so far that we'll spend 50, 60 years building relationships. And then we never actually get to the Jesus stuff. Right? That's right. Like I'm, I'm it's relational evangelism. He's right. like, yes, do that. Right. Be relationally intelligent. But at the end of the day, to be an evangelist, to evangelize, the good news is a declaration at some point uh, of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done and doing. And I think that we miss that part. And I certainly am susceptible to that. People are sometimes surprised, I think, to learn that pastors can struggle in this area as much as anybody. Absolutely. And you ever feel that like tug, like on a plane ride? You're like, I think I'm supposed to talk to this person. I really don't want to talk to this nope. person. Yeah. Like, isn't that humbling? You're like, this Absolutely. is my, I literally... I'm I'm a I'm a professional pastor, right? And in this environment, I'm kind of getting sheepish about sharing my faith. Like, what do, what do we what should we do with that? Uh, I think it, on that sense, it's an acknowledgement that we as pastors are no different than other people, right? Like, mm. evangelism can still be difficult. Uh, but man, you make such a great point about 
I'm fully in agreement with the concept of relational evangelism and asking missional questions and building relationships. That's why I just loved talking to Rick Richardson the other day. I'd yeah, encourage seriously. you to go find the podcast, find his book. Uh, what'd you say? It's called You Found Me, right? You Found Me. Yep. And, Fantastic. Uh, because Rick could tell stories. He told us stories. He's not just an author about evangelism. Right. The guy breathes it and lives it. And he's telling stories about, uh, right, the, the couple in his, uh, uh, in his apartment complex or uh-huh. his condo complex. He basically said, we've been loving on them. We entered into their pain. And then we told them about Jesus. Like he, he, he finishes that progression with each of these that he talks about. Uh, and and I would say if we're never willing, it's not an all or nothing deal. Like it's not like either I go and walk on the beach with a clipboard or I don't evangelize at all. Yeah, right. Like there's a better way in the middle. And I I don't know, man. I I think that if if we're not willing to get to the point where we're willing to ask people the hard questions and have the 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 conversation that could be uncomfortable in the start, like that often evangelistic conversations are a little uncomfortable. If we're not willing to go down that road, then, it, you know, I, the reasons either I, off the top of my head is either fear or we don't fully believe that people need to hear about Jesus. And b- both of those are problematic. Well, and again, you mentioned it, the stats, the uh, the link there that research has shown that 78 percent of people who don't attend church be willing to engage in a faith conversation if asked. 78 percent mm. is an insane number. It actually links to uh, another article that he wrote entitled The Problem with the Harvest uh, is not the harvest. <laughs> uh, like, it, and it's a pretty convicting piece about like, hey, it's not it's not a drive by guilting of you know Christian. You need to be doing this. Uh, in fact, later in the summer, we're gonna we're gonna launch a series called uh, How to Bless Your Neighbor, and the bless is the bless acronym. B begin with prayer, right. listen, eat, serve, and then story. And then yeah. we found that to be so helpful because it takes some of the some of the fear out of like, oh gosh, do I just walk on the just walk up to their door and rap on their window and yep. say, I want to tell you about Jesus, like giving people tools and resources to how to how to do this in a way that is actually mindful of the culture, yep. mindful of people, but still has, you know, some grit to it. It still has some courage to it. And I think finding that I love that. I love this idea of reimagining it. Right. You're not yeah. changing the content, but maybe the packaging changes. And I had a professor that always talk about like, what's the what's the packaging today? It doesn't have to be. Maybe it shouldn't be what it was in the 60s and yep. 70s yep. and 80s. And how can the church like identify some of the sacred cows in our midst and say, Hey, we need to keep doing this, but the ways that we've been doing it, actually those times have changed mm. and for everyone not to freak out that the times have changed, you know? Yeah. And I think that the words, uh, Paul's words of do the work in, of an evangelist are still true. And Jesus's words about the harvest being plentiful, uh, and to pray for the, for, to rise up those who will work the harvest is still true. Yeah. And, uh, and we are a going, <laughs> we are a going faith, right? Go and make disciples. And so I do think how we evangelize is a great conversation to have. Do we evangelize is not, uh, is not up for debate. Yeah. That's well said, man. You've been listening to the common good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. Oh, I didn't do a fun intro. No, I like it. You can't give it to them all the time. You can't give them fun all the time? Not all the time. Just stick with straight show business? Sometimes. Right over the plate. Yep. Hello. Hello, listeners. <laughs> My name is Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm is here as well. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio <laughs> Show, 1160hope.com. We also have an app. We don't talk about the app enough. Uh-uh. You can also stream us. So if you're like just driving through Chicago... 
accidentally picking up this station. Uh, there is an AM 1160 app. You can listen to us all the time, wherever you'd like, or you could stream us. And uh, we have podcasts. If you like and subscribe and review, that legitimately does help us out a lot. Really, really appreciate it. And uh, I, I love to, one of the things about this show that's so fun is the stuff that we talk about are things that we're already talking about. Yeah. Like, it's just conversations that we're having. And I actually had a friend write me, and she said, uh, hey, here's a topic idea. Worship band concerts. Hillsong came recently, and I struggle with the concept uh, paying money to see something like this and if it's really worship. Mm. And I thought, okay, that actually is a really interesting concept. She doesn't live in the state, uh, but Hillsong was actually recently here in Chicago. And I don't know if you went or had friends that went, but my news yeah. feed was blowing up with pictures and videos. I'm like, oh, we're at Hillsong. Did you know anybody that went to the Hillsong I don't concert? think recently. I, I know people who have gone in the past, though, for sure. And I've never gone. Have you been to like a big, massive, like worship tour experience? Mm-hmm. Before? Never? No, but I, honestly, sometimes I'm like, well, that looks like it'd be awesome. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. totally. Yeah, it's a whole it's a whole thing it's a whole production and i think uh kind of at the root of her question is what do we make of some of the uh i don't know can i call it capitalistic nature of like worship bands and worship albums and worship tours i'll add a bunch of caveats because one i know that this is their profession Mm -hmm. two i know that like through touring and selling records uh is how they make their money Three, I also recognize that a lot of these musicians are rooted in a local church expression, which I do really appreciate. I yeah. think sometimes, especially in preacher world, it starts to get a little wonky for me when they're no longer associated with a local body or denomination. Yeah. Like yeah. they start to just, hey, I have this thought about this doctrine. And you're like, yeah, but you're not rooted in any tradition, any like line of thinking at yeah. all now. Yeah. Um, so I do appreciate some of those things. But then at the same token, I really get what she's saying. Hey, it's this 30,000 person arena. And we all paid eighty dollars a ticket. Um, where's wh- that money going? What, one, where's money? it going? Right, but I think the subtext for her too isn't just where's it going, but can we, should we, really be calling that worship? Is the yes. idea even of a worship concert um, congruous? Can those kind of coexist together? And I would love to know, just off the top of your dome, your thoughts. Yeah, it is one that I've struggled with before. Everything from worship concerts to you know, you turn on a radio station. Locally here, uh, I hit it on the other day and, and the person came on and they were like, uh, bring you worship today. And it was like this whole mm. kind of button. You were like, OK. Oh, the guy actually used the phrase helping you get your worship on. And I was like, well, I don't okay. love that. Yeah. And so part of it does go back to a theology of worship. What does it mean when we say worship? And all of us uh, pastors hopefully end up pointing people back to Romans 12 and talking about uh, our lives being worship. It's worship's not about singing, but singing is part of it. And that's what we're talking it's about part here. Of it, yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I, I wish I had a better answer except to say that it does make me feel uncomfortable this, um, but it doesn't mean it isn't without its, its benefits. I'm sure people going to this concert are singing the songs and, you know, having an experience that's positive and, can they come to understand things about God through this? Sure. Absolutely. Um, but there's something how you're going to help me put, you're going to help me put a finger <laughs> on it because there's something, there's something that makes me uncomfortable about it. What do you think it is? Oh, I was hoping you'd answer that. I'm for so, me. Well, I don't know what makes you uncomfortable it about it. It might be the money. It okay. might be the money. It might be, but they couldn't do it for free. I understand how? that. I understand that. I'm not saying any of these are going to be right answers or make okay. sense. It might be the money and the merchandising. It might be, um, a lot of what already makes me uncomfortable about big mega church kind of showyness, okay. okay. yeah, I yeah. guess uh, that might make me uncomfortable. Like, um, 
Yeah, I wonder if back in the, you know, 17, 1800s, if they were having hymn concerts. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know? Well, there's certainly a good record of the types of singing gatherings they're Absolutely. having, though, which Absolutely. would employ, I imagine, the technology of the time. Like, right. even just at Yellow Box, you know, like based on my previous experiences, Yellow Box is, is way bigger than anything I'm used to. But we also host conferences, you know, yep. from touring groups. And they'll sometimes kind of poke fun at us, like you only have this many smart lights or whatever. Like it really is all relative, That's you know. It's like so based on my experience, I'm like, oh my gosh, we had friends that did an internship with us from Nairobi uh, Bible Chapel in Kenya, and they're like, oh, this is like a this is a teeny tiny campus. This for them was you know based on really? yeah based on their experience. They're like, oh, wow. we come from a church five times this size. And you're like, holy cow! So wow, a lot of that comes down to perspective. And I I did I would love to know your thoughts on these. Then by the way, because I didn't have this prepared, but I just. It, just while you were talking, I Google searched, uh, are we okay with worship concerts? Oh, good. A Gospel Coalition article came up, and I won't read. Uh, I, I, get, I know. Going this, with no. All right. All right. <laughs> no, I, it just, there's three main points. I won't read all of the text in between them, but I'll nope. just read the, the points and, uh, and get your reactions. Uh, number one, if we, the congregation, can't hear ourselves, it's not worship. Mm. Number two, if we, the congregation, can't sing along, it's not worship. Number three, if you, the praise band, are the center of attention, it's not worship. Mm. What do you think? I think those are true. Uh, oh, do you? I think so. Okay. But it also, I think they're too, it, it might be a little too minimalistic there. It might be a little too, it's the same thing that I don't understand that Facebook post going around now, like making the big deal about hymnals versus screens. Mm. Like really, it's the hymnal that makes it worshipful? Like, <laughs> is that what we're saying now? So... Yeah. Do I think that they're right when it says you go to a concert and the Hillsong band is the center of attention, therefore it's not worship? Well, it might they might be the center of attention for me, but not the guy down the row. Mm. Um, the same way when I go, you know, hear a great preacher, that person down the row might be really, you know, get that preacher's really speaking like God is really doing something while I'm like, well, I'm just going to hear critique John Piper right now or whatever. Yeah. Right. And so that, that's a dangerous criteria, I think, because a lot of times that's on the listener. That's not on the person putting it out there. Yeah. That's true. Um, but I do get their points. They're not wrong. I'm coming across really wishy-washy. I say you're so I really, moderate right now. <laughs> you and I talk about how we'll come across issues where we don't know what we think. And I don't, you would probably think a pastor should know what they think about this one. I'm not sure. Yeah. Because if someone handed me tickets to a Hillsong concert, I'd go. Yeah. And I'd bring my kids. And I'm not, well, I, I'm not saying you don't have to say that you're morally outraged by yeah. it to say, I, I think that might be something different, though, than what we understand as worship. I yeah. think they both can coexist. Like you wouldn't turn down free tickets to a baseball game. It doesn't mean you have to believe that the baseball game is worship. Right. You know, you're like, oh, I just know that this is something different. And it's a bunch of people gathered and we're looking in the same direction. Yeah. But it's not. Church, this is different. It's certainly not church. Can you still have, can you still worship apart from church? I guess that's kind of I the question. I think you absolutely can. Yeah. And I don't have enough time to rip into this as much as I want to. I'll go for it a little bit. You got I, two minutes. Come I on think now. the singing along is a, is a total crock. Yeah, I do too. I, I think. Even though I said I agree with those, I was more agreeing <laughs> with the last one. <laughs> yeah. I think you can worship riding your bike. Mm-hmm. I think you can worship looking at a fine piece of art. I think you worship sharing steak and a good bottle of wine with close friends. I, I think when Paul says, whether you eat or drink, whether you walk or lie down, all of that is charged with the grandeur of God. Ooh. I think to limit it just to, uh, hey, these songs need to be singable in our key, and we can't be making much of the band. I get yep. what it's reacting to, yep. but also as a musician, can I just say, I think to knock any musician for a flourish on the piano or a solo on the guitar, that's not worship because 
that's in any way more than a chord. I'm like, yeah, but God gifted this person yeah. with creativity and skill in this context. Yeah. What if that's part of their worship? I mean, you could make the same thing about like, oh, that person's showing off by harmonizing. No, no, yeah. God's given them a musical ear and they're expressing it. Now, yeah. this is where it gets tricky. I think you're touching on it. How do I know if this person's playing a riff out of a worshipful heart right. or to draw attention to themselves? Yeah. We don't know. That's the whole point. So like for a Hillsong tour and a concert, knowing like about this much about what it costs to actually run all of those things. I'm okay with the ticket prices. I'm mm. okay with them even making a living doing it. I do want to be really careful though, to not muddy the waters too much when we differentiate between a concert and worship. And I think we've honestly, unfortunately uh, demonized mm-hmm. concerts. We've demonized even the word performance in some ways, to be honest, a sermon is a little bit of performance art. Yep. And we're so quick to say like, Oh, it's not a performance. It's a sermon. You're like, yeah, it's still you. You're not a character, but we don't, in any other part of our lives, stand on a stage with a microphone, you know, and, and like share yep. from our heart. Like there is yep. something to the artistry that I think we can celebrate and be enriched together or singing these songs, even if it's in an arena. I just think, I think I'm actually less concerned about a tour like this and more concerned when the local body tries to mimic those things. Oh, that's good. Does man. that make sense? Oh, a hundred percent. Go for it. Make the money. So that if God's gifted you with these songs and this vision, I'm actually okay with that. It, it, it really starts to frustrate me when churches try to just copy and paste what they yep. saw at a conference for the sake of their local expression. That's the part where it gets tricky. At the me. end of this article, it's exactly what you're talking about. They talk about, uh, the hill songization of churches. <laughs> yes, right. Exactly. Where churches are like, well, that's what we're supposed to do. So we're going to sing every song they do now. And we're going to, yeah, as if I that's totally the formula. That. And it's not, yeah. it's like God's gifted you for a, a particular people, a particular time and place, faithfully care for and shepherd and lead those people. You've been listening to the common good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Soraya Lewis is a food for the poor employee in our Haitian office in Port-au-Prince. Soraya, there's not a lot of news coverage about what's happening in Haiti at the present moment. Can you give us a firsthand account of what's going on, what the situation is? What's going on right now is that there's just a lot of turmoil and it's affected the lives of Haitians everywhere around the country. There's a food shortage, a lot of insecurity. And it's just very chaotic to live in Haiti right now. Life for the average Haitian family has been just uncertain because waking up on a daily and not knowing if you're going to be able to put food on the table is just the worst feeling. And it's it's constant uncertainty because we don't know when things are going to get better. We don't really know where to turn to just have more peace of mind. So extreme uh, lack of food because of the drought, crops aren't growing, livestock is dying, food prices just unreachable. Most people can't afford to feed their family. I know the water situation is also a huge concern. Talk a little bit about that. About a month ago, I was in Cognillon, where Food for the Poor intervened rapidly because it was a water crisis there. It was painful to watch, really. People just lining up the entire day, just waiting to find water. What they did was they had water trucks um, responding to the emergency. So the truck would go by through the city the entire day and stop at various points to distribute water. But it just felt like their lives just revolved around the idea of being able to find water. That's, That's all they did. 
that's not normal. It was like nothing I've seen before. Again, that translates what a lot of Haitian families are going through, not just about water, but also about food, also about basic health, just not being able to go to a hospital because hospitals are closed, because doctors are not getting paid, and they refuse to go in because they're not able to support their families themselves. People are waking up every day and not being able to meet their basic needs. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm, and uh, we are excited again to be joined by Todd Chapman. Todd is uh, from Food for the Poor, and that story you heard there was trying to paint the picture of the humanitarian crisis uh, going on in the nation of Haiti. So first of all, Todd, thank you so much for uh, joining us again today. Hey, thanks, guys. Always love to be with you. Absolutely. Uh, That was just powerful to hear. Can you talk about what Food for the Poor, especially for those who haven't heard uh, heard us talk about it yet, uh, what is Food for the Poor doing? What is the opportunity that people have to make a difference in the nation of Haiti? Yeah, sure. So, uh, first of all, a little uh, background on Food for the Poor, uh, because I never want to assume that uh, any of our listeners have heard of Food for the Poor, even though we are one of the largest international relief and development organizations in the United States, right. uh, 38 years old, uh, and uh, have been in, in Haiti, actually, for more than 30 years, working hand-in-hand with the local church. But a lot of people haven't heard from uh, Food for the Poor and don't really realize the scope of all the work that God does through Food for the Poor, frankly, because we just don't spend a lot of money uh, you know, advertising uh, across the country. Instead, we choose to give that money to the poor uh, and make a, a difference in the developing world. And so maybe you've never heard of Food for the Poor, although I'm pretty confident if you've listened to uh, 1160 Hope for any length of time uh, over the last few years, you've probably from time to time uh, heard about or maybe even been a part of our, our many partnerships uh, with uh, with the station. And uh, But basically, Food for the Poor, our 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 Foundational verse is Matthew 25, uh, 34, where, where basically Jesus said, you know, when you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. And uh, so, uh, you know, for 38 years now, we have just partnered with uh, the church in countries like Haiti and Guatemala, about 18 countries around the world now. And uh, we have uh, just sought to minister to the abject poor, people that are trying to survive in some of the poorest countries in the world, and they're trying to live on maybe a dollar, two dollars a day. And uh, the only way that uh, we've actually been able to to make a difference is is just because of the generosity of people like our listeners, people like you that have, uh, you know, you hear about the need and you choose to give a gift of a hundred dollars or two hundred dollars or five hundred or twenty seven dollars a month, whatever God lays on your heart. And uh, with your generous gifts, we're able to work with local churches, local pastors and turn your gifts into food, into clean, safe drinking water. We've built uh, thousands, actually hundreds of thousands of of homes uh, across 38 years, uh, which is another huge need uh, in the, in these countries. And, you know, in short, this is an opportunity for you to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And in this case, guys, in Haiti, which is the poorest country in this side of the world and going through a really, really hard time right now with uh, this food crisis. All right. So the number to call right now is 855-901-4673. That's 855-901-4673. Or you can go to 1160hope.com. Click the Haiti Humanitarian Crisis there at the top. And uh, here's the ask. $320, a one-time gift, which breaks down to about $27 a month, provides food for a year and water for life for one family. Maybe you're thinking... 
We can do way more than that. Maybe it's a small group. Maybe it's a business. Maybe it's a couple of families in your block. But we are really, really calling on our common good family uh, to care for these other families. And I'm wondering, in just a couple of minutes, Todd, could you tell us a bit about what it's like to sort of be on the ground to see some of what you're talking about? Yeah, so I've been to Haiti uh, more than a dozen times in my nearly 10 years with Food for the Poor, and it's it really is just gut-wrenching poverty. Uh, I, I mean, and I've traveled to a number of uh, third-world countries, but Haiti's uh, worse than anything I've ever seen and, and actually getting worse now than it uh, has over the last been in the last 10 years or so. As a matter of fact, many experts have said that uh, things in Haiti now are worse than they were in the wake of the the earthquake of 2010. Oh, and wow. That was a bad scene then. But and, you know, it's um, it, it's it's pretty staggering. You as you drive around, uh, whether it be the streets of Port-au-Prince or out into the countryside, you see people uh, desperately doing anything they can to just survive another day. Mm. And so, like, in Port-au-Prince in particular, it's this beehive of activity. I mean, it's a city of about four million people, and the streets are just jam-packed with people carrying stuff. And they've got their little roadside stands set up, and they're trying to sell stuff. I mean, everything from baggies of water to fruit to furniture to, uh, you know, uh, little containers of, like, Gatorade-sized containers of gas. I mean, you name it, everybody's got this hustle going on. Mm. But I can't, you know, every time I'm there, I'm just like, man, this is just... An exercise in futility because everybody's working so hard, but nobody's getting ahead. Mm. They're just trying to survive day to day. And then if you go into a home of, uh, you know, just pretty much anybody in that country, because 90 percent of this country of 11 million people literally uh, lives in, on less than two dollars a day. And so it's the same story, uh, you know, whether in the city or outside the city. If you go into the, the house of a typical poor person there, um, it's always the same thing. A lot of kids. Never enough food. Uh, they live in little ramshackle huts uh, that are not fit for you know human uh, occupation, and oftentimes they're sleeping on the ground or maybe the whole family sleeping on a little mattress. Wow. They never have enough food to eat. Work is nearly impossible to find, and so it is an absolutely desperate situation. And honestly, guys, it's it's hard not to just you know throw up your hands and say, "Well, mm-hmm. this is hopeless." Yeah. You know, what, how, how's this ever going to get any better? But we can't we can't do that, right? We can't do that for a couple reasons. Number one, because we always have hope in Jesus Christ, and uh, you know, absent that, Haiti would be a very very hopeless situation. But uh, across thirty eight uh, years of working in in eighteen countries and thirty of those years in Haiti, we have seen a difference. Uh, that you can make as a donor to food for the poor, uh, one family at a time, one person at a time, and so that's why we're coming to you today and just saying, you know what, don't don't get focused on the big problem. Focus on the difference you can make mm-hmm. for one person, for one mom, for one family. And when you consider the fact that for less than a dollar a day, you can lift a family right now that literally is is in a situation where they're not eating on a daily basis. You can solve that problem for them if you just would see it in your heart to make a commitment of $27 a month. And that's what we're asking you to do Mm -hmm. right now. And, guys, I'm really excited because when we started uh, this campaign earlier this month, we had about 30-some families that we had kind of uh, earmarked for the uh, 1160 Hope family. And we're down to 10 families now. So we are almost done with this. And I believe that we could wrap this up in just a, a real short amount of time. It would only take just a few people saying, you know what, I've heard you talking about it. It's a busy time of year. And I'm sorry I haven't done it yet, but I'm going to do it right now. So call 855-901-4673. 
901-4673. We're asking, would you prayerfully consider making a commitment of $27 a month for the next 12 months? And with that, we're going to be able to feed a family, give them clean, safe drinking water for life. Absolutely. You can also go to 1160hope.com. That other voice you hear is Todd Chapman. He is with Food for the Poor. We're going to remain with Todd in our next segment. We're going to talk more about this humanitarian crisis and what we can do about it this Christmas season. That's next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. And I'm going to try and say my name correctly. Oh, Yo, you can do it. It's Ian Simpkins. There you go. Hold on. I feel like I really, uh, really accomplished something today. There you go. That other voice you're hearing is Brian Fromm, who is cheering me on. You can find us all over the place on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, on Twitter at Common Good Talk, 1160hope.com. Plus, the show is podcasted. If you want to call into the show and share your thoughts, it's 312-660-2594. That's 312-660-2594. And uh, here's an article that, again, I wonder how many people realize, like, what an issue this is for pastors in particular. Yes. Like, some of this might be... Inside baseball. Either way, I think it's a little peek behind the curtain. Ten questions more important than what was your Sunday attendance? Before we dive into it, how often do you hear that question? All the time. Really? All the time. From people from your church, outside the church, other more pastors? outside. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, so some people in the church might ask questions like, what's our attendance like compared to last year uh, or okay. whatever? Uh, Congregants, but, parishioners will yeah, ask that? Okay. On occasion. Uh but more so outside. If you, so, you come up to me. We don't know each. We know each other, but you don't know what I do. Oh, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Usually, the number one question after that is, "Oh, really? How big is your church?" It is usually the number one question. See, I usually give uh, either square footage or average height of the attender just to <laughs> mess with people. <laughs> oh, about five ten. People are like, how big? Is your... <laughs> like, <"What? laughs> how big is your church? Uh, unfortunately, about two fifteen, two sixteen. Oh, the Daniel plan, though. <laughs> uh, see, again, all of those could work numerically, though. None of that's. The I'm realizing point. how many times I've done that joke. The people probably had no idea I was even joking. We go. He's at a small church, uh, <laughs> but you know, it is the question that comes out. It is rarely how healthy is your church or this or that. And I get why. Like that is. That Why? is an easy way to categorize the church the other person's talking about is by size. It has always been that way. It is. Uh, you think so? Uh, in I would say in the past, you know, generation or two, it's oh, it's been that way, and so it's a way for people to go. Okay, he's in a huge church. He's in a small church. She's in a this or that. But but what I don't think people understand sometimes it really plays into the insecurities of us pastors. <laughs> yeah, it really does. Um, or to the pride of us pastors, right? right? If your church is small or shrinking, uh, it's a real burden. If your church is growing, whether healthily or unhealthily, uh, it is a real shot to the pride. Like, yeah, let me tell you about my church. Let me tell you. <laughs> Last year, we were, you know, one service, 150. Now we're three services, 500. And people right. are like, oh, wow, you must be a great pastor. Right. Uh, so, again, we talked about in, seg- uh, in the first hour here, uh, at the beginning of the hour, we talked about Dave Ferguson and the great work he's done of talking about what's your church's scoreboard. And that's what this article gets at. It's at Christianity Today. Carl Vaders, who has been on our show and Carl Vaders has kind of writes a lot as a small church pastor. What is it like to be a small church mm-hmm, pastor? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some of these things? And he's trying to say, uh, on any given Sunday, even the smallest, simplest church service juggles an amazing array of complex issues, from setup and teardown to relationships to administration, spiritual to emotional, planned events to unplanned interruptions. But too often we reduce the value of this beautiful, multi-layered gathering of believers, seekers, skeptics, and hypocrites to one overly simplistic metric, namely, 
how many people showed up. Yeah. So that gets at what we're talking about. And he goes on to basically talk about how we are more than numbers. Well, let me, I'm going to read a little bit more because it's, it. it's so good. He says, certainly almost every pastor in church is grateful when church attendance is on the rise, myself included, which I appreciate him saying. He's yeah. like, I'm not immune to this. I'm yep. not saying. Uh, he says, it's not that attendance figures don't matter. It's that too many of us have made those numbers the primary, sometimes exclusive focus of our attention. It's not that attendance figures don't matter. Um, and I think that what, what he's saying there is that when we make that not only paramount, but sometimes in some cases, the only thing we talk about, he says, this is misguided at best, idolatrous at worst. Yeah. And I think idolatrous is a good word. It's for it. intense language. So I want to get to the 10 and then uh, respond to him a little bit. So why don't you read the 10 questions uh, more important than what was your Sunday attendance? Yeah, I love I love what he did here, because this is a guy with a lot of experience, experience in a small church, experience writing. Uh, he does small church conferences, so he's he's uh, thought this through a lot. Number one, was Jesus the focus of our attention? Yeah, that's a tough one to uh, to uh, uh, quantify. Thank you. That's a hard <laughs> one to quantify yeah. or describe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was Jesus the focus of our attention? But he's saying whether your numbers are going up or down, or they were good or bad, whatever. If you could look yourself in the mirror as someone who's led in the service and say Jesus was our attention today. Uh, he's saying that's a win. Number two, was the Bible taught well? Hmm. So did we open God's word? Did we teach it to the best of our ability? Uh, number three, was hope offered to hurting people? That's a good one. Number four, did anyone come to faith in Christ? So there's a number right there, right? You can go, uh, you know, what what transformation did we see? Number five, did church members love, serve, and encourage each other? Hmm. Number six, were guests made to feel welcome? Uh, were guests made to feel welcome? Number seven, is there more excitement about the future than longing for the past? That's mm. an interesting one right there. Mm. Uh, more hope for the future than longing for the past. Number eight, were any broken relationships healed today? Were any broken re- relationships healed? And number nine, are people more prepared to live for Jesus after having been here? Are, it's this whole uh, everyday missionaries, right? Are them being here made them more prepared to go out and live out their faith, to go out and live in their neighborhoods. And number 10, <laughs> I love this one, the simplicity of this one. Do people want to come back? Yeah, right. Are they going, are they leaving here today going, well, that's never happening again. Or, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to come be a part of this community, to yeah. be back. And so he says, certainly nothing on this list is new, but I, I do find this to be good. It's, it's, uh, it's a good, good lens. These are good lenses to look at and, and speak of health and some effectiveness. Well, and I'd love to hear from anyone that has a thought about maybe another question they would ask. Maybe you can share some insight into what it's like, even if you're you know a part of a church, you've been on church leadership. Like, What are questions that you found that your team really resonates with? You can call us 312-660-2594. The one that I think uh, is maybe the most convicting is maybe that last one if people want to come back, you know, mm-hmm. because sometimes that can feel very, um, I don't know, low hanging. Like, well, of course we want them to come back. I remember, you know, Andy Stanley's church that to be a church that unchurched people love to attend yep. that idea that like, yeah, I know that they're not going to have an entire life transformation likely just in one service. So are we actually creating an experience in a way that people are like, you know what? I don't know how I feel about all this stuff. Yeah. I'll come back next week, though. Yeah. I, want, I want to check it out. I think thinking about that in those ways can be really difficult because we put so many eggs in this, like, 60-minute basket yeah. of of this production sometimes. And production is not a naughty word at nope, all. I nope. think that's a really important component of all of it. But I don't know. I'm, I'm challenged by this list. Is there, is there one that stands out to you? Yeah, you know, it sounds like the most basic one, but the first one was Jesus, the focus of our attention. Yeah, right. A lot of times when we put services together, uh, 
we in, inadvertently or on purpose make ourselves the focus of the attention. Yeah. Or our production, as you said, as a whole, the focus of the attention. So we want people to leave going, you know, if you preach the message, man, that was an awesome sermon. Right. If you're a worship leader, man, that guitarist, that guy. Or that singer. I right. love those songs. Right. Not necessarily what they said. I love those songs. Right, right. Uh, we, you know, that video clip, man, I love that. Or whatever else it might be. Uh, when we ask ourselves, in, really our goal is to say people, as they leave, going, man, Jesus was really, uh, really, really given the glory today. He was really praised today. And, and that's got to be a lens. And, and I like that being question number one. To really ask yourself if you lead or if you help put service together or whatever else. Was Jesus the focus of our attention today? I think that's a powerful one. And that's uh, that's something that I try to say every time, too, before before we come to the table is, you know, this is ultimately mm. about Jesus. Yep. This is the reminder that ultimately it's about his death, resurrection, the life that he lived. And I think that is something that is always as pastors, but just as people to kind of keep always at the forefront. And that's a tough question to grapple with. Well, you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, it's Ian Simpkins here, and after I had this experience with Thrivent where we were able to host this marriage conference with two other churches in the area, uh, my interest was kind of piqued with regards to what kind of organization this was, and it was really fascinating because they approached me, who was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and they said, we actually provide these free workshops for people that want to be wise with money and live generously. And so they sent me this link, and it was all these different topics, questions that people in my church actually were asking. And so it was remarkable. They hosted this workshop uh, a number of times in the coming months for people in our church to do just that, to to be wise with money and to live generously. And that's kind of how this relationship began because there was this no strings attached kind of mentality. It was just their heart to give back, to partner with pastors and churches to help people uh, live generously, to be wise with money and live generously. And that was kind of the continuation of my relationship with them. And so if you're interested in learning more, I can't encourage you enough to head to Thrivent.com today. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Uh, Glad to have you join us. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. And on Twitter, at Common Good Talk. That's at Common Good Talk. Well, yesterday you were telling me about a an HBO show uh, that, not surprisingly, I was completely unaware of. <laughs> like, sometimes when it comes to pop culture, I can be borderline Amish, but you know, borderline Amish. You can be like, "Hey, did you watch the Mets game last night?" <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> uh, but there's a there's a new comedy on HBO called The Righteous Gemstones. Uh, that that you wanted to touch on a little bit. Tell us about that show. So, first disclaimer. Yep. As you mentioned, it's on HBO, and this show mm-hmm. takes full advantage of its HBO-ness. Of the HBO-ness, <laughs> yes, exactly. All sorts of questionable material. Worse than questionable. I'll just, can I get all of that out in yes. the open? Just so anyone the that's disclaimer driving, is out. I'll probably make it a couple of times because it is rough. Which just, is fair because you, you don't want people to now be like, oh, I'm going to watch this, oh, and then all of a sudden they're like, show my uh, Christians, right. It is rough, gotcha. for sure. But the, uh, the show is... Uh, it's by Danny McBride, 
And I don't know if you're familiar with Danny McBride at all. He's done a lot of, um, I mean, his, his lane is actually pretty raunchy in general, but gotcha. he wrote and directed it. And uh, it's about sort of this mega corrupt, mega church mm. family legacy um, started by John Goodman. John Goodman and his, uh, you learned very early in the first episode, his, his wife has passed, but they sort of launched this ministry and it's grown to this like mega insane thing. And he's got these two sons that are kind of vying for the, vying for the next seat um, in succession here. And then a, a daughter who sort of gets left out okay. in the cold a little bit. And uh, so no, you have, none John. of this sounds like it ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So you have John Goodman, who I just think is a fascinating actor. He thinks yep. his career is so bizarre. Um, and the fact that he just kind of continues to remain relevant. And then Danny McBride is the older brother. And then Adam Devine. I don't know if you're familiar with Adam mm-hmm. Devine and Workaholics. And he was on Modern Family. He's got a stand-up oh, thing. I know so Modern Family. They're the two brothers kind of kind of vying for position here. And um, it was interesting because he did an interview with Dak Shepard. Do you know who Dak Shepard is? I do. And I just looked up Adam Devine. I really like Adam Devine. So, okay, yeah. So And so Dak Shepard has a, a podcast again pretty rough in terms of yeah. language so if, if you're like googling right now like just full disclaimer but he interviews a lot of uh, a lot of celebrities it's called the armchair expert and he has this like long form interview with danny uh, about this specific show so i'm interested in the show because um it is poking fun at like a lot of the western ideas of what christianity looks like and a lot of like the the mega movements and okay. like like early in the first episode there's this shot. I actually got a screenshot of it because uh, it's like it's showing their their like fleet of mansions. And there's a <laughs> sign out front of one of them. And it says, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And under it says no trespassing. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's like some of that kind yes, of commentary. Yes, yes. But so I'm listening to this long interview with him and Dax. And uh, he actually is explaining a little bit of the backstory about why he was interested in a, in a topic like this. So I want you to hear a little bit from him. And this first one is him kind of talking about a story of how the church responded to his mom specifically uh, when he was a kid. So take a listen to that. And then my parents got divorced when I was in sixth grade. and My dad kind of ran out on us. And suddenly it was like, here's my mom who works in a department store at the mall. She's got two kids. We're living in an apartment. And you're, you're thinking like, you know, maybe this church that we've donated all this time to will be supportive. And instead, they the people there like basically like turned their back on my mom. Shamed they, they shamed her for getting a divorce. And so, you know, I was little. I was I think I was in sixth grade when this happened. But I can remember like seeing my mom and like knowing how much the church meant to her. And now she just didn't even feel like she could enter the church. And so for a few months, she still would drop me and my sister off at church on Sundays to go. And we did it. And then after a few months, it was kind of like, what are we doing? Like, why are we going <laughs> yeah. to this place every Sunday? Like, it's yeah. not, you know, it's done. And then we just never went back. And then that was kind of the end of it. And I, and I remember distinctly having like mixed feelings about that, even at that age where I dread it going to church. I hate it sitting in those sermons for an hour, not being able to do anything and having to just sit there and listen oh, and just like brutal. draw pictures. And so uncomfortable. So too. uncomfortable. But then that feeling that you would have when it was over and just knowing that like, yes, the whole day's ahead. And then there was like when we stopped going, I had this weird like I kind of missed it. Like I kind of missed being forced to do something I didn't want to do for yeah. an hour. And I and when I could suddenly just sleep in on Sunday mornings, Sundays like that afternoon, Sunday wasn't quite as special anymore. Yeah, it's like we as a, a species have this kind of implicit desire to repent. Mm-hmm. Like you want to go somewhere and then be like, yeah, I suffered and now I can stop hating myself. 
So I, I found that a lot there. Really fascinating, though, yeah. by a guy who, by most standards, if you're familiar with Danny McBride, maybe you're Googling him right now, like, I, I don't know necessarily that anyone would know him for any, like, deep thinking or deep writing, and the show is, is certainly poking at some themes that you and I have talked about, particularly with regards to the church, but to learn that a lot of that comes from a deep place of woundedness, yeah. that this family that was really deeply invested, and he talks later about, we were, you know, we were the five nights a week family, and then my parents got divorced, and him thinking... Oh man, this is when the church is going to be the church, yep, and the yep. opposite happened. And again, this was you know a long time ago, but obviously, like, still has still has affected him. And I'd, I'd love to know mm. what you thought, sort of even just hearing some of the honesty of his experience. Yeah, I, there's clearly pain back there, and in the church, doing some wounding, right? Like just not caring for his mom at a point where there was great pain in their family and great need to be cared for yep. uh, had generational impact. Yes. Not just on the mom, I'm sure, but yes. on the son. And now he's probably going to raise his kids in a certain way. Like this is a warning sign for the church. Like, like what are the, what are you doing uh, that is either going to um, point people to Jesus and help them understand the caring and the love of God's people or vice versa. There's pain in there, man. That's hard for sure that he tries to, almost portray a detachment for it, but the mm-hmm. more he talks about it, it's clearly still there. Yeah. And the thing that he, uh, that he says that I find so interesting because I don't know if you ever saw the movie like saved. Did you see saved with Mandy Moore and Macaulay Culkin? That was probably 12 years ago where it was also kind of making fun of the kind of Christian m- movement as a whole. And, you know, I remember seeing interviews with them talking about, um, the research that we did was to actually go to these churches and these events. And to be honest, they really, we had already kind of written the script and then we started going to these events and we realized we hadn't gone big enough. Like they mentioned some real strange. And again, this obviously isn't every Christian event. Yes. It's not every church at all. I'm not saying that at all, but it is a really helpful glimpse, I think into how some of this is perceived by people on the outside looking in. Yes. But what I find so interesting about McBride, I want you to hear a little bit more from him because he's very clear to say we're not, shaming religious people. He's like, I think that's so rude to do. We're shaming the people that are exploiting that system for their own monetary or political gain. And I think his perspective on how he threads that needle is, is really, really interesting. Yeah. You know, who knows what happened? I mean, people get outraged over anything. So, I mean, I'm not fearful of people like being outraged, but there's a part of me where, you know, I kind of understand in some ways why there is an outcry sometimes when Hollywood tackles religion. And I thought it was like watching Anything I could of like, well, who else has tried to tackle space in here? I think they make the mistake of like they like make a joke out of what people believe in. Yeah. And I feel like that is just like kind of obnoxious. And it's like that would piss me off if it's like someone who doesn't understand where I come from or what I believe. Or the it's value like, it's adding to yeah, my life. Yeah. Like I think that that is wrong to do. So I think with this show, it was like we don't we're not trying to say anything about what you should believe in and what you shouldn't believe in. We're not trying to comment on the Bible. We're commenting on these like hypocrites who are basically fronting this operation and like basing all their their value on like these morals and these ideals, but then not adhering to any of them themselves. So I would love to know how you feel about that, because what he's saying is a lot of what we've actually tackled on this show. And it's so interesting to hear it from the perspective of Hollywood. That's again, depicting it in a very pretty blue and crass way. But there, I don't know. I think there's some truth to that. While not expecting our leaders to be perfect. There is nothing more infuriating than we've had to deal with all these stories. than when, uh, when pastors use their position for power and for their own self-advancement. Mm-hmm. And again, you just listen to these guys' voices. They've created a whole show around this now, but you yes. listen to their voices and their their stories, and 
you can see that the of what it did to this guy. Yes, right. Uh, and now, uh, yeah, we see it all the time. It makes me worried for the church because you hear story after story after story of the dangers of when those in power uh, cut away and, and use it for their own power. It's it's just sad. I think it's inspiring to try and do better. Well, it's an interesting show. Uh, and, and what's interesting is also that these shows are popping up more and more, which might say something about uh, the reputation of the church. We'd love to hear more from you at Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. Well, you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, uh, running solo today as Ian Simpkins is out of town doing some church work. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show online at 1160hope.com. You can always find our podcasts uh, wherever it is you find your podcast. Go ahead and subscribe, rate, and v- review. We appreciate those of you who uh, do that. Uh, the weekend is just about upon us, John. We're there. You got any big plans? That's our producer over there. John, you got any big plans for the weekend? To do absolutely nothing. Oh, come on. You're too young to do absolutely nothing. How old are you? <laughs> 25, Come man. on. Quarter you're century, supposed to man. be out late. You're supposed to be doing... You're running. Well, you're I, getting I up early up, to run. I stay up late, I stay up late anyway. I, I've i kind of learned to do that. I might regret this college. question, but you stay up late doing what? Uh, Video games? I do love playing Zelda. Zelda's like Stop. one of my, Oh, dude. Zelda. That's awesome. Single best game probably I've ever played. I grew up on The Legend of Zelda, Nintendo. Yeah. But. Breath of the Wild's the uh, best one yet. All right. Um, I, I write music, play music, and stuff like that. So I, I kind of take... I, I find that my most uh, solitude I get during the day is at night. Oh, okay. I get the most, I gotten the most work done. I scored an entire movie. <laughs> nice. Are you, a, are you a late sleeper or do you get up pretty early? I used to be, but I, since working here, uh, graduating high school, la- uh, high school, Congratulations. Since, graduating, <laughs> since graduating college, <laughs> college last year, uh, I, I wake up no later than nine 30. Do you know what that's called? What? Being an adult. Yeah. That's called being an adult. Oh, dude. So no idea. Are you, oh, wait, uh, you totally have an idea. Are you leading worship? Uh, at your church this week? Uh, this week, no. I'm I'm on camera this week, camera okay. duty. But the first two weeks of August, for sure. That's I, awesome. I usually man. do two weeks on, two weeks off. Well, that That's is that is fabulous. Well, uh, I wanted to share earlier today. Uh, I did something that. Speaking of being an adult, I went and got my oil changed. And um, you might be out there thinking, well, why didn't you just change your own oil? The answer to that question is because I don't have the slightest idea how. And uh, I'm I am one of the least handy guys, you know, but when it comes to cars, I know next to nothing. So I've got friends that I call to be like, hey, the, the mechanic said I need to do this. Do I need to do this? Yes, you do. OK, good. But I'm that type of guy that they can really uh, they, they can pull a lot of stuff over. How about you, John? You uh, you a car guy? Well, uh, I didn't have to be until last week. Fun story. I know I'm kind of we're getting on a rabbit trail. I had to change a tire on the side of I-90. I can do that. I've changed a tire. Yeah. Did you blow it on I-90? Yes, going about 80 miles an hour. Uh, Coming they, home from this very station. There is something called AAA. Yeah. Uh, didn't feel like sitting on the side of a highway waiting for it, and I had the jack, I had the tire, and I'm like, you know, let's just do it. I did it in like seven minutes. 
I, fastest I've ever done something and the most terrified I've ever been doing anything. It's on the side of the highway. I once had to do that outside of New York City on Route 80. That was never fun. But anyway, no. I do not know how to change my own oil. So I went to Jiffy Lube, got an oil change today and, uh, you know, sitting there and they call you out and I'm going to do what all pastors do. I'm going to take a very common occurrence and I'm going to try to turn it um, spiritual and, and try to challenge us a little bit today. Uh, he was asking me which oil I wanted. And again, I feel like I'm getting ripped off, but we, we worked it out and I had a coupon, so it worked out very well. And uh, he was explaining one of them and he said, this particular oil uh, helps not allow sludge to build up, which is just such a cool word, right? Sludge, um, but not good for your car. And uh, one of my past cars, I did not take care of well enough. And I think it was sludge and stuff that really kind of was the demise of it. But keeping it tuned up, keeping the oil fresh, and then getting rid of the sludge. And I had this moment of thinking, man, isn't that a great picture, somewhat of a parable uh, of the Christian life? And that is this. uh, First of all, it's this concept of maintenance. So the reason I went and got my oil changed is because the little light on my on my dashboard was telling me you need to get your oil changed, uh, change your oil. And then I looked at the little sticker on my window and I was past the mileage that I was supposed to go get it done. And uh, so I went and got my oil changed. So the question is this. Uh, are you the person out there? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, What are those lights on your dashboard, if you will, that make you realize, oh, I've got some work to do. There are things going wrong. Are any of those lights on right now? Uh, Maybe it's uh, cynicalness and bitterness, or maybe it's sinfulness. Maybe it's, no, I don't go to church anymore. I've kind of done this. What are those indicator lights that that are kind of screaming at you? You need to, you got some work that needs to be done. What are those indicator lights? And then are you the type of person that gets the, uh, you, you could see me air quoting uh, on the radio here, what are, what does maintenance look like for you? Are there people in your life who will ask you the hard questions? Are there, uh, are you part of a church that is going to help you? That's helping you grow and helping you wrestle and helping you do things. Um, are you reading your Bible? What, what does maintenance look like for you where you look in the mirror and you go, you know what? I have been kind of sliding. I have been kind of apathetic. Uh, but now, you know, I, I've got these one or two or three people in my life who are going to help me much the way these guys at Jiffy Lube, they could look at my car and say, here's the oil it needs. They could tell me what it was, where it goes, or your mechanic who can tell you what's wrong and help fix it. Uh, who are those uh, people in your life? Because, man, that's going to be uh, really important. Put you on a spot, John. How about yourself? What are who are the people who help you do maintenance? What are those things that when you're like, you know what, apathy setting in? What other else? What does maintenance look like for you? I'll give you a, a, like a quick uh, testimony. In a I'm bottle. ready for it. I'm ready so for it. After I graduate, well, while I was at Western, there's almost no fellowship out there. Okay, I'll just say that first things first, and I felt myself absolutely alone without uh, my accountability partners and stuff like that. And yeah. you're mentioning your mechanic and let's just say your dentist or yeah. your general physician or whatever. Those are your accountability partners in life. They're the ones who tell you, hey, uh, you are a bit overweight. You need yes. to lose some weight. Yes. Or, uh, a trainer. You know, you're, 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 I'm going to have to send you to an allergist because uh, you're, you're reacting differently to this medication or something. Like, something to keep you in line, keep you check. And it, you're talking about oil change. You get that done every, what, three months Sure. Maybe three months, 3,000 miles. I think that's the general of the older engines. I need an oil change every day, <laughs> yes. man. 
Yeah. Like coming back here, I dove back into the church as much as I could after, after college. And I, I'm in a life group that we call it a life group. It's our small group, our men's group. I dove back into worship and I'm telling you this, like every other day accountability and engaging and becoming friends with wholehearted on fire Christians was the single best oil change I've ever had. I mean, it it was, it was awesome. So my, my, my weakness is reading. I don't dive into the word enough. I don't read um, encouraging books enough. I, mm. I, I watch content and stuff like that, you know, like Ch- Chad Veach or Rick, Wil- Rich, Rick Wilkerson. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Like they, they have good, encouraging, quick, um, you know, accountability checks mm-hmm. that they, they post. And I love watching that. But I, I have a, uh, a weakness of not reading. Yeah. So I have people that just keep me in line with doing that. That's great. And then the, the, the other thing I realized on my oil change here is... Um, it was this concept of sludge and I, I it's, it's really um, it, it paints a picture. And sometimes I feel like stuff builds up in my life, whether it's cynicism, uh, bitterness, it might be for you, unforgiveness. You can't help it. Uh, and it this happens. Yeah. This kind of spiritual sludge uh, builds up. And so here's what I want to leave you with before we get into just the insanity of the way we end every show. Uh, what are you going to do uh, to make sure that that spiritual sludge, and I could be making some leaps here. This is what us pastors do, but what are you going to do so that spiritual sludge doesn't build up? That's kind of what I was thinking of as they were talking to me at the oil chains. He's, he was describing what sludge does. And I know so many people who used to just have just a, just kind of a radiant love for Jesus who now they're, they're kind of cynical uh, for good reasons, bitter for good reasons. Uh, they're, they're, doing things they shouldn't do and in that that picture of sludge i thought was really good maybe you don't think it's a good one but man that that's a powerful one to me and so yeah i guess i had a little bit of a spiritual moment at jiffy lube today and it's another reminder that god is at work and god is at work in all places but uh, i would like you to wrestle with those questions before we just do the insanity from the internet I'd like you to wrestle with some of those uh, has spiritual sludge has sludge built up in your life and if it has what are you going to do about it uh, the Holy Spirit is at work and 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 other people can help. But what are you going to do uh, or don't you care or don't you care? Uh, spiritual sludge, uh, something I lo- something I thought about while at the Jiffy Loop today. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. I mentioned it earlier, so this article is called Gen Z is Making Me a Better Preacher. And again, as a quick aside, I think this can apply to a lot of people. Yes. Like You and I are both preachers, mm-hmm. but sometimes people will ask, like, why do you do stories about preaching? And I'm like, it's about leadership and it's about being in the world. So if you need to replace the word preaching with leading or coaching or serving. Or just getting to know Gen Z, yeah, how right. they think is helping me if I'm not a Gen Z. Like it, Which we all should, this. by the way. Yeah, you like, can apply this across the board. It's not just about like, oh, I want my church to reach oh. this demographic. Like, I think we all should care about like, what are the ways that we can better engage the yep. people that are coming behind us. That's a good baton pass, right? Yep. Regardless of what we're doing. Either way, and just, so, just a quick aside. And so you and I as preachers, you know, we tend towards things like Christianity.com slash pastors, which is where this is at. But yep. I don't think we would do this if this wasn't applicable beyond pastors. I think this is this totally. is a good uh, there are some good thoughts in here that are good just for relating to different generations. That's right. And I'd love to know because we posted this on the Facebook page. So, like, how does this hit you? Like, what are the things that you think the author gets right? 
What are the things that we totally miss? All right, we're open to all that. So here, here's how it opens. Uh, it's by Trigva Johnson. It says, I stepped into the pulpit of Dimnet Chapel at Hope College and looked out at a sea of young faces. It was the beginning of the school year, and these students looked very much like those from the previous years, bright, curious, with a hint of suspicion in their eyes. Yet a few subtle clues told me I was preaching to a different kind of crowd than the millennials I was used to. I invited them to open their Bibles, and instead of pulling out books, nearly every person in the room touched an app on their iPhones. Mm. I made an oblique Seinfeld illusion, hoping to register a laugh or two, but I was met with polite, blank stares. In previous years, at least a few students had seen reruns of the show, but this is the Netflix generation, I remind myself. As I moved into the heart of my message, I was surprised to find that even basic biblical references evoked few looks of recognition. I realized then uh, I realized then and there that assumptions I had been relying on for years would need to go out the window. Two years since that chapel service, I've had more practice preaching to Generation Z. After much trial and error, I've discovered four strategies that help me connect with them from the pulpit. Again, he's writing from a preaching perspective, but I think these could apply for most all of us. Why don't you kick yeah. us off? Number one, it says, I get inside my sermon. What does that mean? Even more than millennials before them, this generation tends to be suspicious of organized programs and well-trodded, well-trod church paths. Anything that seems to lack authenticity. This demands two things from my pre- preaching, vulnerability and creativity. Good preaching now is more like singing than lecturing. Mm. Young adults want to know that your message comes deep from within and isn't a paint by numbers homily. Mm. That's why I do my best to get inside my sermons. I try to feel the words in my heart as I speak them because students know manufactured enthusiasm when they see it. True passion comes from within. That is uh, that's challenging right there, but kind of getting at the the feeling authentic aspect of this next generation. Yeah, let me read a little bit more from this one. The This one is I get inside my sermon. He says in preaching to Gen Z, I've realized that presence is usually more important than polish. Hmm. I allow myself to be mockable when I slip on my delivery. Uh, I lean into the skid and laugh at myself. That's hard to do if I'm overly rehearsed. I don't know how rehearsed you are, by the way. What does that look like for you? Um, it. Uh, not, I used to be much more rehearsed really, and I would like to say that that was much more driven out of a decision. It's much more driven out of just busyness and time, but, uh, I know what I'm saying when I get up there, I don't have the confidence. I don't think to just go up there with a really lightly sketched out outline. Yeah. Right. How about yourself? Uh, it totally depends. I'm actually, this is not really interesting information, but I'm trying to like slowly uh, have fewer and fewer notes with me. Are you? I'm trying to get to the point where I have, you know, I just started using an iPad, which is terrifying because like if it goes black, I'm stuck. Like, I don't, you know, paper never loses power, but uh, I'm trying to have less and less pages up there as a way to sort of like wean myself away from all of them. Um, But yeah, like the authenticity piece is, is, is hard to do. And I think it's really important. Number two, I offer a sense of history in place. He says, one of my favorite characters from Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings is an Ent named Treebeard. The Ents Mm -hmm. are custodians and protectors of the forest. They have long memories, and their vocation of stewardship is tied to a sense of place, a deep love for their natural surroundings. Their unique understanding of responsibility is tied closely to where they've been and where they are. Most members of Gen Z I meet have little sense of history or place. In the digital age, when even groceries and fast food can be pre-ordered and delivered, fewer places exist that nurture a sense of communal identity. That's so good. 
Globalization gives us many gifts, but can also strip away our sense of place, the recognition that our location has a history yeah. where God has been at work. This kind of reminds me, actually, of a story we did a couple months ago where some pastor was claiming the future of church is purely digital. Yeah. The place doesn't matter. And you and I both kind of went in on that a little bit, probably uh, in large part because of this particular perspective. Totally agree. There's this grounding that I think we can lose, like you said, in the digital age that uh, I think the next generation needs and I think longs for Hmm. uh, longs to have. Number three, uh, I treat people like insiders. Uh, Gen Zers uh, are the most connected generation ever, but they're also the loneliest. Hmm. Uh, Jean Twang in her book, iGen claims that this generation is on the verge of the most severe mental health crisis in decades. Wow. Sure, it's overall more and more college students are struggling with mental health issues, not just those who seek help at counseling centers, but among representative samples completing anonymous uh, surveys. And then she goes on to talk about that, but basically talking about uh, just the loneliness. This makes it important to address students as insiders rather than as strange, unknowable others. Mm. Nearly every student I know wants to be wanted, included and invited into something meaningful. For this reason, I don't buy into the idea that I need to scrub my message clean of all theological and churchy language that only makes my sermon feel shallow and artificial uh, and students can tell when we lower the bar to pander to them. Instead, I talk like a Christian. Hmm. True, sometimes I need to translate terms I use, but by keeping the language of faith in my sermons, I help students learn the Christian story in which uh, they can find their place. This is really this is really something. I, the loneliness of the next generation, despite their connectedness, their connectedness is really something that I think uh, is going to become a bigger and bigger and bigger issue uh, as we move forward. Uh, and and I think treating them as insiders and as part of the conversation, I think, is is really important. Well, he, he goes on to say, this is one of the ones that I hear a lot. Some preachers worry that Christian lingo creates barriers for young people who aren't familiar with the church. And too much of it can do just that. But Gen Z is used to learning new terms when they engage with stories. I don't worry about tossing incarnation or atonement into my sermons on occasion as long as I explain what I'm talking about. I would rather students think I'm expecting much of them because I see them as insiders than belittling them because I see them as outsiders. I think that's brilliant. Absolutely. Here's the last one. Number four, I preach for Gen Z, not at them. No one wants to feel like a project and Gen Z is not a problem to be solved. Full stop. That's really good. One of the best gifts we can offer Gen Zers is to talk less about them and more about God. Despite what we hear so often, the great temptation to worldliness for young adults doesn't seem doesn't come from drugs or sex or screens. It comes from the subtle suggestion whispered in every corner of their lives that they can go about living without giving any thought to God at all. From boomers to Gen Xers to millennials, we have seen a long trend of young people moving from identifying as religious to spiritual. But according to Twang, this is the first generation in American history that is uninterested in being religious or spiritual. One way we can show up for Gen Z is by offering winsome, consequential, mm-hmm. and God-centric preaching. What do you think of that? I think it's it, it's great because there there is a pandering that says, hey, remember the next generations in the room, right? Remember the right, next generation. And this guy's saying, no, uh, speak to them, uh, not like just kind of acknowledging them to be in the room. And, uh, you know, some of this can sound to people out there like so tiring. Like I have to think through every level of person that I'm speaking to. I have to think through every level of person that I'm interacting with. And I think the answer to that is both a yes and a no. Yeah, right. Right. There's there is a timelessness to truths 
And I think there is, it's not like every generation is completely different from each other. We have the same struggles, but we also have our uniquenesses to us that about from the culture that we've been raised in. That's different from the 1950s or the 1970s or the 1990s. And uh, we have to be cognizant of that. And and because if we really desire to connect with people, regardless of age, we got to kind of know what drives them and what they struggle with and, and how they relate and interact. Hmm. I like what he says here, too. He's like, I'm not, I'm not saying that political or cultural issues shouldn't be discussed in worship. But he goes on, he says, recently uh, I preached during Advent on the prologue of John 1, 14, the word became flesh. I explained that the incarnation teaches us that God takes our bodies seriously. Mm. A week later, a student told me she'd been struggling with an eating disorder because she hated her body. And she said this. I love this. Just hearing that God cared about my body was something I had never thought of before. It's been really healing. By keeping God as the subject and object of my sermons, I've been amazed at how relevant they have been to the daily lives and questions of students. Mm. That is such an important temptation for communicators to sort of round the corners a little bit, to be more relevant, to be more edgy, to be more applicable. And part of what he's saying is keep focusing on and you'll be blown away by how much Gen Z actually resonates with it, especially in areas that we maybe otherwise wouldn't see coming, which I think is humbling. And I think it's something that I, both of us want to get better at. And hopefully, you know, Gen Zers in your life or community that you want to invest in, like this is worth taking to heart, regardless of your vocation or your life stage, because uh, we need it. We got to do it. Coming up next, we're going to land the plane the way that we always do with some interweb insanity. And I feel I feel particularly insane today. There's some uh, kind of insanity right. in the air. A lot of Florida. And I don't know if that's probably a lot of Florida. That's both of our predictions. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm, and that music can mean only one thing. Some of you are turning off your radios. That's, <laughs> but if you're just joining us or you're new to the show, we spend just the last few minutes because regardless of what we talked about, there probably was some heavy stuff, some light stuff, some weird stuff. We try to end just with some interweb insanity, and the internet never disappoints. They are stories that our producers have found. We have not seen them. We have not read them. We also don't know the sound effects that will be accompanying them, so it's all a surprise to us. So if we're giggling, it's because we're reading them for the first time. If we're horrified, we're horrified right along with you. And I'm going to let Brian Fromm kick us off. New Jersey, my home state, says this. Man accidentally grows world record corn stalk. Uh, Matt Giacovelli, age 80, loves feeding animals in his Deptford Township, New Jersey backyard. Every day he spreads kernels of corn and watches from his porch as critters feast. Given all the kernels, he's pretty used to pulling weeds, but one kept growing and it was something of a mystery. I'm not a farmer, he said. It's just this freak accident here is giving us a lot of attention. What he thinks happened is a squirrel took one of the kernels from his yard and buried it in his garden. We joked around and said, "Okay, let's let it grow. After a while, he started to notice something unusual. There were several cobs growing from the same stalk. We started counting them, and I think we got to 20. I said, this is unbelievable. We may have this record. <laughs> to be exact, there are 29 cobs of corn on the single stock. Ah, wow. It's now the Guinness World Record. I don't know whether to congratulate you or not. I wouldn't. <laughs> this is a normal corn stalk has one ear. Did you know that? No, I did not. That's crazy. This one, 29. Wow, I'm going to go see it now. All right, England. Two skydivers in near miss with fighter jets traveling oh. at 350 miles an hour. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> two skydivers. John thinks John's it's hilarious. Laughing, yes. <laughs> 
Two skydivers nearly collided in midair with a pair of fighter jets traveling at almost 350 miles an hour over the UK. A report has revealed the parachutists, yes. I didn't know that was a word, were free-falling Tom Petty style Go do it. at speeds of 120 miles per that hour. might be coming right now. It might be, that's true. Over Shatiris Airfield in Cambridge when the U.S. warplanes passed underneath them. Holy no cow. Way. Details of the incident in April have been revealed in a report by the U.K. Airport, Air, Airprox, Airprox Board which classified in its second highest danger category. The air safety assessors said they had seen footage recorded on the helmet cam of one of the skydivers and could clearly see the F-15 jets passing beneath. Okay, I'm, uh, I'm going to need a change of clothes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we get our first Florida. Wait a minute, hold on. What are your, what are your articles doing face up right now? Well, those ones we've already done. You're reading them before we even got there. No, I'm not on at all. Brian, I just Brian, turned it we, over. We told them that we don't read them I ahead of time. I just turned it over. We the New Jersey one beforehand. I did not. Ah, that's I right, John. That's These, right. Thanks for holding is, us accountable, John. This is hashtag fake news coming from Ian Simpkins over here. It's not true. He was reading New Jersey before we started. I saw it. Florida police break up frozen biscuit brouhaha. A woman accused of hitting a man in the head with a bag of frozen biscuits got in a jam uh, with Fort Pierce police. The 25-year-old woman was arrested August 29th on a battery charge after the alleged carbohydrate caper. The man identified as the victim told investigators he was struck uh, in the head with frozen biscuits. He Hmm. said the woman got upset and came outside where he was sitting. The alleged biscuit beatdown happened as the woman swung the bag of frozen biscuits and struck him in the forehead. Yikes. A biscuit is a type of soft bread, often (laughs) with baking powder or soda. This article describing to us what a biscuit is. (laughs) Myriad recipes exist for sweet and savory varieties. Oh, my God. I'm going to stop right there. She said the victim's wife kicked her in the side, but investigators saw no signs of injuries. Like, clearly just looking for words at this point. Yeah, that was really interesting how it, it turned on us there. Why don't you just add some recipes for biscuits <laughs> in the story? All right, California, man may close store after being bitten by a homeless person twice in four months. Oh, boy. A San Francisco business owner says a homeless man has bitten him twice on the same guy in the last four months, and he's had enough. The victim owns the Harvest Urban Market in city's Soma neighborhood. He says homelessness and drug problems are fueling the violence. Police arrested 29-year-old Adam Ashabrak. For the biting attacks, he was charged with aggravated assault and battery. The business owner says he often finds homeless people selling and doing drugs inside his restrooms. Oh, oh gosh. You didn't just do that. Uh, <laughs> if I mentioned that we didn't choose these articles, I feel like I just need to say it every 30 seconds yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Sweden, last one from Sweden. Bomb Squad called the Swedish preschool. Uh, after child brings in live grenade. Oh, boy. Did we again parenthetically mention we do not choose yeah, these Yeah, gosh. I'm just going to say it every 10 seconds Officers now. from Sweden's National Bomb Squad put a preschool in lockdown on Tuesday after a child brought in live ammunition into the class. Uh, staff at the kindergarten in the southern Swedish town of Kristianstad called the police after discovering the suspicious item in the evening after the children left for the day. Once on the scene, police realized it was a grenade and decided to call in the bomb squad. Detonation experts assessed the device, which a police spokesman described to CNN as a like a rifle round but bigger, and deemed it too dangerous to move. It was then dismantled in a controlled environment at the kindergarten. The spokesman told CNN that the child had found the ammunition in a field used by the military uh, for training exercises. Police did not identify the child, saying only that they were aged under seven, the starting age for school in Sweden. It's pretty good.
Oh my god! What I feel like guys? we're ending on a real not a real down Monday. real low note here, man. Wow. Let's, let me look to tomorrow. Tomorrow <laughs> we're gonna talk about our obsession with iPhones. There's a new uh, SNL cast member who's in some hot water. We're gonna talk about some of the modern idols of the church and a whole bunch of other things. My name is Ian Simkins, along with Brian Fromm, here on the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope you're like.